Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. I'm Kasia. I'm Dylan. Our book this week is Stalingrad, written by Vasily Grossman and first published in 1952. In April 1942, Hitler and Mussolini meet in Salzburg, where they agree on a renewed assault on the Soviet Union. Launched in the summer, the campaign soon picks up speed as the routed Red Army is driven back to the industrial center of Stalingrad on the banks of the Volga. In the rubble of the bombed-out city, Soviet forces dig in for a last stand. The story told in Vasily Grossman's Stalingrad unfolds across the length and breadth of Russia and Europe, and its characters include mothers and daughters, husbands and brothers, generals, nurses, political activists, steel workers, and peasants, along with Hitler and other historical figures. At the heart of the novel is the Shapozhnikov family. Even as the Germans advance, the matriarch, Alexandra Vladimirovna, refuses to leave Stalingrad. Far from the front, her eldest daughter, Ludmilla, is unhappily married to the Jewish physicist, Victor Strum. Victor's research may be of crucial military importance, but he is distracted by thoughts of his mother in the Ukraine, lost behind German lines. And we are joined by historian Antony Beaver, His latest book is Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921. Welcome. We're honored to have you on the show. Very good to be with you. We first want to ask, where did your interest in the Second World War and especially the Russian side of it begin? Uh, Originally, it came, funnily enough, through the Spanish Civil War, which I worked on first and was my, in a way, was my first book. And then I realized that one needed to really examine the Russian Civil War if one was going to understand the history of the 20th century. Gotcha. But fortunately, my publishers at the time um, were not interested (laughs) and persuaded me to do a totally different, totally different book. So uh, I finally came back to it, um, whatever it was, 30, 40, certainly, yes, uh, uh, over 30 years later. But the Second World War, I suppose, there were many reasons for being fascinated in it. I mean, I grew up, I was part of a generation where one's parents were completely defined by what sort of role they'd had in the Second World War. Did they have a good war? My father was in Special Operations Executive, which was the British, in a way, forerunner of OSS, and had, I think, a very interesting war from that point of view. So yes, one was, if you like, influenced, and that's why I think there was a difference in generation of historians studying that period of the, particularly of the Second World War in comparison to, say, many other subjects. Mm. But I think the question of history and the study of warfare is something we'll probably very much be coming on to when we start talking about uh, about Grossman and uh, his account of Stalingrad and uh, uh, the fighting on the Eastern Front. Right. You edited a book, A Writer at War, comprised of selections from Grossman's wartime notebooks, What stood out to you about his life in researching that project? Well, when we were, when I say we, that was very much my Russian colleague, Luba Vinogradova and I, and this was uh, 28 years ago, when we were researching Stalingrad, the Battle of Stalingrad, one of the places, of course, we went to very early on in our research, funny enough, even before going down to Volgograd, as Stalingrad was renamed. Mm-hmm. was to go to the archive, the Russian archive for literature and the arts. And there very much we were interested in Grossman's wartime notebooks. Mm-hmm. He had these tiny little notebooks, which we studied with fascination. I mean, they were a squared paper. They were, what, you know, just a, a couple of inches, three inches wide and about five inches long. 
And he literally was scribbling down everything that he saw. Oh. And one saw what a fantastic observer he was. And this grabbed me at the time. And that's also why when later on, Christopher MacLehose, who had published Grossman, published uh, Life and Faith for the first time in Britain, persuaded us that we should actually do a book on Grossman's wartime notebooks based on those notebooks. One felt very tempted, but also it felt like a duty almost that uh, we knew perfectly well that, should we say, Grossman's family had not done well out of the way they'd been treated by Mm -hmm. their foreign publisher. And I discussed it very much with my agent, who was a Russian scholar anyway, um, Andrew Nunberg. And eventually the family, the Grossman family, handed over the whole of the control of the Grossman estate to Andrew Nurnberg. And so very much we were there and he was doing all the negotiations with Guber and with with the daughter. So really it sort of started from that particular point. Gotcha. The cover photo of the book is called uh, German Troops Advancing on Stalingrad by Arthur Grimm on this NYRB Classics edition. Grimm himself was a 20th century German photographer, and he collaborated with the Nazis' uh, propaganda machine working in the Warsaw Ghetto to make Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic journalism. His work provides a fascinating dark mirror to Grossman's, and this photo depicts a moment of their respective sides colliding. What did you you take from the picture? Well, there are two things. One is that um, there is snow all around. So they were hardly advancing on Stalingrad at that particular stage. They'd already reached Stalingrad. Oh, uh, so okay. there's a certain, certain paradox there. Yeah. <laughs> the Nazi swastika uh, flag, of course, uh, is a panel, an uh, air recognition panel, to make sure that the Luftwaffe are not going to shoot them up. I mean, it could be that it's advancing on Stalingrad, if you like, when at that particular point of November, when Hitler was ordering even the panzer troops into Stalingrad in a last desperate attempt to seize the city. Okay. And um, but in fact, which was, of course, absolutely disastrous. But the trouble was, from from a German point of view, was that General Paulus, the commander of the Sixth Army, did not really have the moral courage to tell Hitler that that was the last thing they should be doing, because this was the Mm -hmm. disaster. They sent in the tanks uh, on Hitler's orders into the city at this period. And this is when the snow arrived when, in fact, they were about to be surrounded. And uh, they knew perfectly well that the Germans were threatening their flanks, which were two Romanian armies, one to the north uh, and one to the the southeast. And this was the moment of maximum peril. Uh, And sure enough, on the uh, 19th of November, uh, the Red Army struck. And this was, if you like, the crucial moment. Fascinating. So Stalingrad and Life and Fate have been compared to Tolstoy's War and Peace. And in a way, Grossman invites this comparison by placing a character beside Tolstoy's grave in a pivotal scene in the first part of Stalingrad. What do you see as Grossman's relationship to Tolstoy? And do you see any comparison between the two authors as warranted? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, Life and fate, war and peace. I mean, it is a deliberate <laughs> homage to Tolstoy. I don't, I don't think it could, could be much, much clearer than that. <laughs> and in a way, it is certainly, you know, it is definitely the war and peace of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't, and you know, it was, it's not a question of any form of uh, plagiarism or anything like that. War and peace was the one book that he read during the Second World War, and he kept rereading it. 
so I don't think that uh, we should we should uh, worry our heads in in that particular on that particular score. Fair. <laughs> I, I do find his writing very different from Tolstoy's, though, and you know, Absolutely. Tolstoy has to do with like the extravagance of Russian empire. His concerns are are different. The, so I, I when I first heard the comparisons when I started reading the book, I did feel like it was a bit reductive. But the more and more I got into it, I could just see that this is just what Tolstoy would have been in the Soviet era. So I, I, I do think you're correct in that point. Well, I think that I agree, but I think that um, Tolstoy had a view, if you like, of history. I mean, uh, yeah. I adore War and Peace, but I can do without the history lessons at the start of uh, each section. <laughs> and also, I do think that sort of Tolstoy uh, got things slightly wrong by trying to fight against the great man theory of history with uh, you know uh-huh. the, the reductionism of the idea that... Uh, Napoleon, uh, as he tried to make a joke of it, you know, that Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo because uh, his valet hadn't put out dry clothes. <laughs> and uh, in fact, of course, although history has changed and we have, you know, social and uh, geographical and, uh, and environmental sort of uh, versions of history, as well as the great man theory of history, I think one has to accept that, you know, the great men in inverted commas do have a major influence on history. Uh-huh. And certainly, let's face it, Stalin, Lenin. I mean, without Lenin, I don't think that the Russian Revolution or even that the Soviet state would have survived otherwise. Certainly in Lenin's case and his abilities to see and prioritize uh, in 1917 really did lead, in fact, to the triumph of the Bolshevik party, which might not have happened otherwise. But leaving all of that aside, there is no doubt that Grossman's intentions, Grossman's uh, priorities uh, were totally different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And especially in the case of, war, of uh, life and fate as opposed to uh, Stalingrad or for a just cause, whatever you want to uh, call the uh, first novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, in life and fate, it is very much of a political phil- philosophical analysis, really, of the whole Stalinist period. And I mean, it is a work of insane bravery still to have written that while Stalin was still alive, just. And in many ways, many people have rightly said that, you know, Grossman was only saved by Stalin's death during the time of the Jewish doctors and the persecution, the anti-Semitic persecution that was going on at that particular stage. But I think that the whole issue of um, the anti-Semitism is, a, is an incredibly important, important one in that particular way. But he was also the very first person to start making parallels between Nazism or fascism of that particular German sort and Stalinism, mm. which, as I say, was insanely brave. But then Grossman was one of those very few people who was both physically brave and morally brave. Mm. And they are um, a very small minority on the whole. Mm. And one must certainly, you know, admire and respect him for that. There he was in 1941 when the German invasion started. And he said, you know, he was teased by the young, for there he was, uh, fat, overweight. Uh, he had to walk with a walking stick at that particular stage. Yet he still <laughs> volunteered for the front with Krasnodar as a war correspondent. And then started to sort of even boast to his father, you know, that actually his pistol shooting wasn't bad. I mean, here was somebody who was basically came and obviously came from that sort of Jewish intellectual elite in Moscow. The sort of person who soldiers would have despised and had nothing to do with it. But he actually was one of the only 
journalists who they really respected. All of the others, I'm afraid, felt that they just had to bow to the propaganda dictates yeah. of Walker, of the uh, sort of central censorship, really, over them. And that is something which, uh, you know, we're seeing the consequences of that even today with Putin uh, mm-hmm. and the whole business of Kazakhstan. But um, perhaps you'll probably want to cut this out. But anyway, well, <laughs> you know, they actually created a whole fake film about um, these Kazakhs, 28 men, uh, General Panfilov's 28 men. And Putin spent a fortune making this film. But the head of the National Archives of GAF, of the State Archive of the Russian Federation, pointed out that they knew that this was complete falsehood because the story which came actually from Krasna Zvezda, from the Red Star newspaper of the uh, Red Army, had been completely invented by a journalist. And this was a story of this one general who, with 28 men, had fought off a whole German panzer division in the Battle for Moscow in December 1941. And Putin's cultural minister, uh, Mijinsky, who was actually responsible for writing the large part of that essay which he produced the year before the invasion, said that anybody, uh, even though the head of the archives had been sacked for actually saying that we know this is false because we've got all the papers in the archives, and Mijinsky said anybody who, who might believe that even though it may not be true but actually sort of criticizes it, uh, they are below slime, he said. So um, what's a pretty good idea of what censorship is today over the Ukraine war, but also it gives you an idea of what censorship was like for the war correspondents at the time. And Grossman was one of those very few. He had a brilliant way of interviewing. He did not go and sit down with a a, a notebook and pad. He knew perfectly well that that put them off. He would just go and sit down with the soldiers after the day's fighting was over. And as they relaxed, and because they they knew that as he was one of the few who would actually be honest, they would start to talk. And then that is the way that he got the detail. That is the way, the combination of his observation powers, that he was able really to put together these extraordinary vignettes, which one finds much more actually in uh, Life and Fate than one does in Mm. Stalingrad. And uh, there is a reason for that in many ways. And that is that... uh, uh, in many cases, they were they were too honest, mm-hmm. whether it's the execution of a deserter or anything like that. The one thing that the Soviet authorities did not want was anything which they regarded as uh, potentially anti-Soviet or uh, which in any way undermined the morale of the Red Army. There is an ongoing discussion about whether art depicting warfare can truly be anti-war. As a military historian, what is your view on that conversation? And where do you think Grossman's work fits into that? Well, Grossman's work fits into it perfectly. I mean, to say that uh, you can't be anti-war um, in art, I mean, think of Picasso's Guernica. I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous mm-hmm. statement. When one, <laughs> and for example, when we, as military historians, in fact, we reject, I reject, and um, so do my fellow historians, uh, reject the title of military historian. Mm. Um, mainly due due to the great example of Professor Sir Michael Howard, who was Regis Professor at Oxford and also in the United States and so forth. Michael quite rightly said, he said, we are not military historians, we are historians of war, i.e. we are recording the experience, the horrors also of what happens to civilians, to the children, to everybody who is caught up in war. Of course. A military historian is somebody who's uniquely interested in, if you like, the 
choreography or the staff officer's view, the top-down view of what is happening, you know, that this division moved in that direction and that battalion moved over there and all the rest of it. Boring as hell. And actually, that's one of the reasons... No, it's true. And that is, one of the reasons, that is one of the reasons why no women, quite understandably, actually wanted to be military historians, I mean, with, with any one or two. And it was only when it became, if you like, and others followed, and it became a much wider approach that one was yeah. writing the history of war, did one start to get some really first-rate women historians, Margaret Macmillan, uh, Catherine Meridale, a whole range, coming into the subject and, of course, improving it, of course. Mm. How has the book's reception changed since it was published in the 1950s? And do you think, or how do you think, that the book is received differently by Russian versus non-Russian readers? I think it's a great pity that when the book came out, when Stalingrad, the um, you're, you're referring, of course, to the Stalingrad um, mm. uh, book came out in the, in the 50s, it was admired for basically Grossman's own talents and all the rest of it, but it didn't. It wasn't likely to have the same sort of effect. It was not as uh, provocative because, for many reasons, and this was no fault of uh, Grossman's, it literally it lacked the punch because so many of his good material was cut out. Now, Robin and yeah. Chandler were made heroic attempts to rebuild it using the sort of material that Grossman had not been allowed to use himself at that particular time. I mean, there must have been continual interventions by editors and others because it was such a sensitive subject. And they knew that um, Stalin was very suspicious of Grossman anyway, not just Mm -hmm. because of his Jewish background, and especially at that particular stage of anti-Semitism in Russia, but also because uh, Stalin had noted right from the start that Grossman was not reliable in a Stalinist sense. And that was one of the reasons why his book was snatched away and was excluded from the Stalin Prize. The change really uh, only came when I think a a decent edition came out uh, in the 1980s. But the trouble was, so much was coming out at that particular time Mm. that in many ways it was sort of slightly lost in, in the mass, in the rush. I'm talking about what was happening in Russia. In, in uh, the West, of course, there was a tremendous interest, I think, because of the sheer honesty that one found of Grossman's writing, and especially with, of course, Life and Fate, which was astonishing, as I said before, in its courage and also, but in, also in its perception. This whole idea that Stalinism and Nazism uh, should be compared. I mean, that, of course, was absolute heresy. And to a certain degree, still is heresy, and particularly under Putin, when one sees the way uh, that uh, Stalin's reputation has gone up from a pretty low level of sort of around the 19%, I think it was, back in 2000 at the time that Putin uh, became president, to what it is now, and the idea of the necessity that such a fast country needs a strong man, and therefore, this is why Stalin was uh, heroic and why... Stalin also was a great war leader, uh, and many other reasons like that. But one also has to remember the difference between Stalin and Hitler at this particular point, that although Stalin was a disastrous war leader at the beginning in 1941, and to a certain degree for a large part of 1942, he then realized that he actually had to leave things to the generals 
uh, and listened yeah. to them. And actually, he became a very effective war leader, while Hitler, of course, is going in the opposite direction, having been admired by his generals for his sort of courage in, which basically meant recklessness up until 1940, and then the invasion of France, uh, which most of the German generals hadn't believed would arrive, uh, would, would achieve or would, um, would work. By 1941, they were starting to lose, or the late part of 1941 and the Battle of Moscow, they were starting to lose their confidence in him. And of course, by that stage, Hitler, like Putin today, was trying to micromanage the war, and that proved disastrous. So, you know, it was interesting. You get one going upwards and uh, improving their war fighting ability or control, while the other one was getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, to such a degree that the British cancelled their plans to assassinate Hitler, Operation Foxley, while the uh, Soviets decided, and Stalin decided, to cancel his plan to assassinate Hitler uh, because he was afraid that, judging other people by himself, that the British and the Americans might well, um, if uh, Hitler was killed, uh, might well then allow a successor government in Germany uh, to fight on alone against uh, the Red Army uh, while they no. backed off. So, uh, shall we say, it is amazing the way that uh, dictators do play games rather more differently to other people. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why we still don't understand dictator syndrome today and why we get things wrong yet again, say, with Putin. Mm. Little did they know how close of an assassin to Hitler that they actually had the whole time. They weren't that sort of close. I mean, interestingly, again, we misjudged. I mean, we assumed, when I say we, I meant the British and the Americans, misjudged, for example, the July plot of 1944 against Hitler because we assumed that any army that was prepared to assassinate their end commander-in-chief must be in a state of disintegration. What we failed to acknowledge or see was that the very failure to kill Hitler at that particular point handed total power to the Nazis, to the SS, and um, to the Nazi party, and that meant that the war would go on until the very day that Hitler uh, was dead. So uh, uh, we actually didn't help ourselves in that particular way. Fair enough. Stalingrad, the book, does blur the line between fiction and reality, with Grossman pulling from his first-hand experiences as well as headline news. How closely, in your view, does Grossman's narrative track the real-life events of the Battle of Stalingrad? And do you think he managed to elevate his just personal experience to a level of art and literature? I think much more the latter. I don't think that I would say in any way that it was a way of learning about the Battle of Stalingrad. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, it's a difference between fiction and um, non-fiction uh, in this Mm -hmm. particular way. It gives a wonderful flavor at times. I mean, the descriptions are superb, but it is not a history book. And he never pretended that it was a history book in any way. So I don't think one should ever sort of try to make that confusion. I mean, I was horrified when uh, my Stalingrad came out back in 1998 and journalists started sort of saying, but is history the new novel? And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> For God's sake, don't let's have any sort of confusion like this. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I do think it does, as best as it could, I think it does elevate a little bit of his, his personal view of it. Victor Strum is obviously a, a mirror to himself, a, a, a Soviet Ukrainian chemist, as Grossman was a chemist before he was um, working as a writer. Cool. But, I mean, Grossman, yes, he used his experiences in every possible way, and quite rightly so. And this is why yeah. those notebooks which we studied 
and actually we had to be very, very careful at the time back in those days. This was, as I say, 1994. Uh, but Grossman's notebooks give you an idea that, you know, he was using his eyes at every particular point. He was definitely going to make use of everything that he saw. Of course. But it was not one of those egotistic, self-centered thing about sort of there I was on the battleground and all the rest of it. Far yeah. from it. Totally the opposite. What he really wanted to do, which was to, if you like, recreate the reality, the mood, the experience of the soldiers and the commanders at that particular time, which he succeeds in doing. Yeah because of the detail, the vignettes that he provides. And this is what gives it its humanity. Mm. And this is, in a way, the difference between the two novels, between Stalingrad and Life and Faith. And as sort of, you know, one reviewer at the time of, Stalin, of the Stalingrad sort of quite rightly, quite rightly said, he said, in the space between the two novels, the idealized bronze figures on a Soviet war memorial were translated into living beings. Now, that is not Grossman's fault that they were just sort of bronze figures. He was forced yeah. into creating these idealized Soviet models and so forth. But it does show what a fantastic novel the Stalingrad section, the first section really of this uh, biology, whatever the right word phrase is for a sort of two volume book sure. could have been if he had had sort of a freedom to write at that particular time. Yeah. But it also, in a way, elevates the extraordinary, the exceptional quality, in fact, of uh, life and fate in comparison. So I think that that is, mm. that is the important bit. But it is never, it is never sort of history in, of the, in any way, the classic sense, sense of the term. It is a novel. And it is, as I, I think everybody who has read it seems to agree, it is a very great novel. Mm -hmm. And life and fate, I think, it really is the 20th century, certainly the Stalinist and the Second World War version of War and Peace. Yeah, he's so beautiful in the way he paints these characters. They always feel so real. And when, when you talk about like he had to still align himself to a Stalinist view, there is a point where the character of Krimov hears the order of not one step back from Stalin. And Krimov is like, yes, let's go. And that is one of the most like terrifying orders that we can think of in history. But it's so interesting in this book to have a character be like, finally, Stalin this did it. rousing moment. I know. Yeah. It's, it's a very strange moment in that book. Well, I mean, this is one of the, one of, this is one of the great powers of his writing. One also needs it to understand why a, an American, a British army, a French army would never have survived at Stalingrad. Mm. You had to have a brutality of discipline which no Western country would have been able to achieve. Mm. I mean, you know, I remember being shocked to the core, as was as was Luba, as we worked together when we came across this thing that the Soviet snipers were ordered to shoot Soviet children, Russian children, who were filling the water bottles of uh, German soldiers in the Volga for the price of a crust of bread, because they had been trapped, they'd been left behind in the city, mm -hmm. they were surviving off roots and berries or whatever. But there came the order, you know, shoot down these children. So it gives you an idea of the sheer brutality and cruelty. I remember, uh, you know, uh, John Erickson, one of the great historians of the um, Russian army in the Second World War, the Red Army, was the one who came across the uh, figure in the Russian archives that they during the whole of the Stalingrad campaign, they executed 13,000 of their own people. You know, this is something which would have been totally unthinkable 
you know, even in the First World War with the British or the uh, even the Germans, you know, they weren't shooting anything like that. Uh, they shot a lot more in the Second World War, it's true, but even so. So, you know, this is why one step back, Nishagun Alzad, which was sort of the great battle cry of the moment. I, funny enough, you won't believe this, but I remember in uh, 1993 or 1994, suddenly found that actually they were selling cigarettes with the slogan of not one step back um, wow. and with an image of the order issued by Stalin um, across the packet of cigarettes. Oh, so, you know, not one cigarette backwards. God, you know, it was terrifying. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. The invasion of Stalingrad is initiated almost two-thirds of the way through the book Stalingrad. And then Life and Fate picks up more or less where that first volume uh, leaves off. It depends. If you time it, no, I think it's a, it's a little bit, uh, in a way, it's earlier. Really sort of uh, the first volume goes through. I mean, remember, um, 23rd of August was basically the attack on, to, on Stalingrad by the mm-hmm. uh, 16th Panzer Division when they reached the Volga there. And basically, the first volume, the Stalingrad itself, um, for a just cause, really finishes at sort of the end of end of September. But I mean, the, the fighting is still going to go on until the following February. I mean, until the first yeah. of February, nineteen forty-three. And this is something which people tend to underestimate. I mean, they tend to think that the Battle of Stalingrad was over with Operation Uranus, which was the the great November operation, which actually surrounded Paulus's Sixth Army. So I think one re- needs to realize that that particular point, but. For Grossman, I mean, the great betrayal was to be sent away down south into uh, into the Kalmuk steppe and not to be allowed to cover the end of the battle in Stalingrad. And he was very bitter about that, which one can entirely understand, yeah. mm-hmm. because it was then handed over to Simonov as uh, the sort of the star reporter. But also, again, I think that it was Stalin who did not want to, um, Grossman to have any of the glory mm-hmm. connected with being there at the end. And But he did his very presence there for so long. And let's face it, you know, it's well repeated, the fact that he spent a thousand days altogether at the front, more than any other uh, journalist. That's by a long way true. But he did mean, though, that he'd made such connections with uh, various commanders and so forth, like Tchwikov, the commander of the 62nd Army in Stalingrad itself, and then later the 8th Guards Army in the advance on Berlin. So Grossman was always there at the front in the major major battles. Gotcha. The way we talk about Stalingrad and life and fate, the two texts are impossible to speak about separately. What did you think about that, the juncture between the first and the second? What did you think of his choice to break up the narrative in, in that way? Is that like a a point that maybe you as a historian, we've talked about how the history is not the new novel. Is that a a significant separation point? No, I wouldn't have chosen that particular point. But, um, you know, that's that's not, again, the difference, if you like, between history and and fiction. Mm. I think that um, he was obviously, again, planning ahead, wondering where, how he was going to come into the second volume and all the rest of it. Mm. And although there was a certain change in the pattern of fighting, that didn't really come until sort of really after, uh, during the October battles and so forth. Okay. So from that point of view, one could easily sort of, if you like, from a historian's point of view, criticise it. Uh, but I, of course, I'm not going to criticise that because that wasn't, that wasn't the point, that wasn't the point of, of the novel. Yeah. Sure, sure. I was interested a little bit in the historical accuracy of certain character situation wartime 
Stroom struggles to continue his work as a scientist during the air raids, and Alexander Shaposhnikov, who is the matriarch of the family, continues work in a factory even when the war is going on. Do you think these characters illuminate civilian and professional life in Stalingrad accurately? And in the book, it mentions that their work is really motivated by patriotism. Would that be historically correct, or was it more by necessity in your mind? I think, to a large degree, it was a you know it was a mixture of the two. I think there was a okay. it was, there was obviously it was like the fighting in Stalingrad. You know, people would sort of say, was it because there were NKVD blocking battalions forcing them forward, or was it because they were fighting out of genuine patriotism? It was a mixture of both. Um, okay. And this is the vital thing where, again, Grossman is so good that he doesn't fall into the generalization, the instant generalization of characters, which both That's many true. novelists or and historians tend to do. And I think that actually one of the duties of a historian, as I think Grossman rightly recognized as well, even as a novelist, is actually it's one's duty to try to break up these uh, generalizations to show the difference in human characters. And this is why his interest in human character is, is so is so important, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. So Grossman fictionalizes some storied figures and moments from the war, and we just wanted to get your perspective on how those were represented. So one of the, the biggies is Hitler appears, and similarly to Napoleon in, in War and Peace, in multiple sections of the book. And Grossman seems to delight in depicting his insecurities and his foibles. What did you make of, of Grossman's take on, on Hitler? And did you think his inclusion was necessary to the story? No, in a way, probably not. <laughs> but, but fair enough, you know. It may have been, again, sort of, you know, doffing his hat to um, Tolstoy because of sure. you know, Tolstoy, yeah. the way that Tolstoy brought in Napoleon and all the rest of it. I mean, I don't think it was necessary. But I would mm-hmm. go back a little bit when you're talking about the professions and the way that they're working. I mean, we see that, you know, uh, Victor Strom is actually working, certainly in, I mean, in Life and Fate, in sort of basically towards nuclear and the working towards a bomb. Now, of course, um, this is a very sensitive area from the Soviet point of view at that particular stage. Sure. And Avrenti Beria was in charge of the whole operation. It was called Operation Borodino, and it was based really on the spies in the Manhattan Project in the United States. Mm-hmm. And this is where they were getting their material. The trouble was that you know, Stalin actually lost interest in it. And so this is why there's something rather unreliable in a, a way about sort of suddenly Stalin telephone rings in the middle of the night. And this actually is much more based on something which actually happened to Ehrenberg. I mean, Ehrenberg, Elia Ehrenberg um, describes how he suddenly got this uh, telephone call in the middle of the night and immediately recognized Stalin's voice, even though Stalin, of course, did not bother to introduce himself. And he must have told, he must have told uh, Grossman this story, and that's why uh, Grossman uh-huh. brought it in. But for many people, you know, it's one of the sort of vignettes or anecdotes or whatever you want to call them, which really sort of grabbed them when they were reading, uh, when they were reading Life and Faith. But I, I mean, you know, that's, I think it was a wonderful element. It's, yes, it changes, it, it's an attempt to change history in a sense, but at the same time, it's part of a novel. It's not. Uh, it, it's just because it's historically inaccurate. I don't think undermines it in any way. Yeah, and I do think, as you say, that it it might not be the real life thing. It does add to the novel. I love the very beginning of Stalingrad, where the first chapter is this section of Hitler demanding the German onslaught into Russia, 
And we go from that chapter to a chapter of sort of this minor character called Vavilov, who is a peasant who is being called to war. He's older and he's leaving his family. And we see his final moments as they're like, oh, do you have your water bottle packed and stuff? And it is this most intimate, beautiful moment of like the person that will be affected because of what Hitler had enacted in the chapter before. And I think more than anything, that point of the book is necessitated and helped by elevating that part of understanding these high level powerful people are going to have the consequences on people like Vavilov and it's it's sad you're absolutely right no you're absolutely right about that and it's terribly important and I think that this is one of the ways actually that history has actually followed fiction in that particular Uh sense of trying to create this thing I mean it was one of the things which I found very much actually as I was working towards and this is again back in the late 80s and the early 90s when I was trying to work towards this thing where you needed to have this combination of history from above with history from below so that you would see Mm -hmm. these contrasts between the bosses, whether Hitler or Stalin, and the effect this had on the ordinary lives. And this is a perfect example, which you've just cited, of the contrast between the great commander or whatever, uh, as they saw themselves, who has absolutely no interest whatsoever in the fate of the people that yeah. they are manipulating and basically whose lives they're about to destroy. Yeah. So, um, no, it's an, it's, a, it's an incredibly important part. And I think this is, this is why history, which used to be written in, in collective terms, i.e. it was sort of always a, a top-down yeah. version, um, now, thank God, uh, since really it was about the 1980s, late 80s and early 90s, when things started to change, and that sort of collective version of events uh, started to be broken up with the experience of the individual. So you could actually see the consequences for the ordinary person caught up in these huge events over which they had no control whatsoever when it came to their fate. Mm -hmm. Grossman does give a lot of detail to his character's involvement in defending the initial invasion of Soviet Russia in the, the first part of the book, Stalingrad. And particularly character of Nabokov, who is running from like airstrip to airstrip as the Germans are bombing each thing and looking for commanders and not finding anyone. Did you find this literary telling of that significant moment of boost to the beginning of the story? Was it historically enforced in that way to you? Well, I mean, you know, this is in the edition which uh, Luber and I did of uh, A Writer at War. Mm -hmm. We recount this particular um, incidence like this. And because, again, here was Grossman's brilliant observation of the different characters. The commander who's desperately trying to seduce the uh, the woman who's sort of serving the the lunch or whatever that they're eating yeah. at that particular moment. I mean, you know, the interplay between the two in just a couple of in just a couple of sentences, he has identified the if you like the power relationship between man and woman at that particular point mm-hmm. and how for that particular moment the providing that the woman doesn't in any way give in, she keeps the power. But knows perfectly, he knows perfectly well that the moment she would say, agree to be seduced by this particular character, then she would lose her power. But at the same time, he's also describing the way that bodies are being blown to pieces, that the fighter pilots who just attacked this particular column of, uh, of German troops has returned and they'd found um, bits of flesh and so forth from blown up Germans stuck in the the engine of the aircraft. I mean, this is where, as I say, he was so fantastic when it came to detail. And um, he was able to sort of reproduce it or reuse it in different forms in a way which no other other writer, not even, you know, um, Simonov, 
was able to do in sort of, I think, in any of his novels. Mm. For another one, a significant part near the end of Stalingrad follows the story of the 13th Guards Rifle Division, uh, which was this unit ordered to hold a, a railroad station and their actions according to legend, really weakened the German entrance into Stalingrad. How much of that is a propagandized version of the story and how much is reality? Because I feel like that's a, it's a reoccurring myth that, that is yeah. told about uh, many conflicts around the world. Well, I think that there's another element too, and that, shall we say, is a little bit of a political quarrel. Mm-hmm. Radinsev, who was a, uh, an extraordinary man and an, an intellectual, which is, shall we say, fairly rare amongst um, Soviet generals <laughs> who'd been involved very much in the Spanish Civil War and the siege of Madrid and all of that, had become a great friend of uh, Grossman in a short pace of time. But he was hated by Chuikov, whose own uh, formations was not getting enough publicity. So it wasn't so much propaganda as, if you like, it was jealousy on the part of Tweekoff wow. uh, wow. and uh, his particular staff. And um, they actually were rather resentful the way that um, uh, Grossman is actually giving so much publicity to the 13th Guards Rifle Division. So shall I say there were, there were elements of uh, definitely of jealousy at that particular uh, stage <laughs> rather than it being pure Soviet propaganda. No, the pure Soviet propaganda comes in more interestingly later with Zaitsev, with the sniper, mm, who was regarded yes. as the great hero and all the rest of it. Well, actually, I mean, a lot of that was invented stuff. The real mm. sniper was the one who was uh, Chekhov. I mean, it's amazing that sort of, you know, here one has a brilliant killer with the same name, of course, as the great writer. Yeah. And yeah. We, have, uh, we have Grossman going out with him. And again, it is a, a tribute to Grossman that a sniper who basically depended, his whole life depended on nobody giving away his position, that he trusted Grossman enough to be able to take him out on sniping expeditions to watch so that he could observe and then take descriptions afterwards. I mean, that is one of the most astonishing things of all. Mm. But of course, they didn't like the idea of, uh, of Chekhov getting the publicity because, of course, he came from the 13th Guards Rifle Division. Um, And, of course, they wanted the Siberians to get it. So that's why Zaitsev gets all of this extraordinary publicity. And I'm afraid, you know, with that film, um, Enemy at the Gates, that was all sort of, you know, part of the invention of the Zaitsev legend and and so forth. So, uh, anyway, there are other things apart from just pure politics and... uh, Sure. I'm afraid in warfare, in warfare, I'm afraid there is a lot of jealousy, particularly between generals. In fact, <laughs> Field Marshal Field Marshal Brook said, you know, why is it that high command brings out the worst in everybody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In terms of jealousy. In that section of the book, especially, but throughout the novel itself, Grossman does not spare us the horror of death in his writing. No. He's very blunt in his rendering of his characters, if you don't mind the phrase, their life and fate. Do you think that's effective to you as a reader and a historian that he is so just, he just drops death at you? At, at, at Characters you've been spending so much time with, he just puts it at your feet in those moments. Well, Grossman also was frustrated and blocked by the censorship authorities over during the Battle for Kursk in 1943. Okay. Because he was far more realistic in his descriptions. And they said, we can't have any of this detail about sort of Soviets being killed, right. about Soviet soldiers being killed and blown to pieces and, you know, your description of uh, uh, body parts and so forth. 
So he was always going to be struggling with the censorship authorities on details like that. But I mean, Grossman never went in for what sort of, you know, one or two people tried to call the the, the pornography of war. Mm-hmm. And it's a very difficult dividing line, as as you might imagine. It's something which I've had to struggle with, and I've even been accused of the pornography of war or whatever. You know, and at times you there are some things which are so appalling that you, you do leave them out. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, Grossman himself, and I'm, I don't know whether we'll be coming on to Treblinka, but I mean, Grossman himself actually said at the end of when writing about Treblinka, You know, it is the duty of the author, of the writer to write it, and it is the civilian duty of the reader to read it. And I think that that is important. I think one's got to get that sort of balance so that people do realize the horrors of the time of what these people have gone through, why so many of them are actually suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or Mm. a lot of these uh, uh, psychological casualties. One's got to understand that. And the only way you can do it is by the horror that they have actually experienced. And for example, I mean, in my latest book on the Russian Revolution, I mean, actually, the degrees of sadism were simply appalling, abominable. How far do you go in that? But it is essential because actually, it was a major contributory factor towards the whole of the history of the 20th century. Because Mm -hmm. the horror that it produced in terms of a vicious circle of fear between the middle classes thinking that they were going to be completely eliminated as Lenin had promised. And of course, you know, the left and liberals thinking that, you know, the white counter reaction was going to crush them. And it's a, when it has that sort of important effect, you mustn't ignore it. You've got to explain why it was so horrific as far as you can, so that people can understand why it affects history as a whole. Yeah, that's a great point. And he, he definitely does go into the horrific nature of it. But I, I just find it fascinating. And we're going to get into some spoilers for some listeners that haven't finished the book. But there's a character of Marussia who is really like one of the central sisters in the family. She is just almost killed as an aside in the initial invasion after you see all these horrific things. Or there's this point where Alexandra and one of their friends who's a nurse named Sophia are going to get into a bunker. And Sophia decides to go back into the city. And there's just this little sentence that Grossman beautifully writes where it says something like, Alexandra knew at this moment, this would be the last time she would see her. And we we get these terrible fates just in a moment. These mm. people are gone. Their, their lives are yes. lost. But that is the truth of war. And this yeah. is why, this is why Grossman was in a way congratulated, but it was, you know, when, who was it, Trufnoff or whatever, who sort of actually sort of said, you know, that Grossman writes the brutal truth of war. And it's true, mm-hmm. he does. Yeah. And that is why he's such an, one of the reasons why he was such an important writer. He didn't try to cover it up. He didn't try to turn it all into a sort of, you know, a heroic epic, as Simonov and others tried to do. Mm-hmm. So this is something to admire and respect. For sure. But it's also the truth. I mean, it really is the way that, you know, death comes in sometimes very silly, stupid ways, which you cannot possibly predict. Or it comes, it doesn't have a come, or it very seldom comes in the heroic terms of, uh, shall we say, of the novel of the 19th century, certainly with the sort of novel which uh, encouraged those uh, who wanted to uh, join up in 1914 or whatever, Mm -hmm. who'd been excited by the wonders of, of war. He just doesn't work like that. And that's really true because there's a moment where Vilyashkin, who is a 
counterpart to I think the name is Dragon of the person that led the 13th Army Guards Rifle Division. Nimrod Nimsev was the commander of the 13th Guards Rifle Division. Yeah. Yeah. He hears someone saying like, "Oh, this person died in a silly way." How how bad of him this other character who's <laughs> killed in like the last chapter and Filiashkin turns to him and is like, "No, no one dies in a silly way. There is only just death. We need to honor everyone that dies no matter how it happens that's that's beautifully told by you and in, in, in a similar way well you know it it's true everybody should be one obviously respects those who've died but actually what one is respecting is the way that they have actually joined up and are prepared to sacrifice their lives yeah for a greater cause but the fact that it may be a silly death is something which one needs to reflect if you like in terms purely of honesty of the reality of warfare rather than trying to rewrite it and rewrite the history just purely to make people feel better. Sure. So Stalingrad ends with with Krimov, who was fought nearer to the Soviet border, taking his first steps into Stalingrad and preparing to defend it. And this moment kind of epitomizes the mythology of, of the city and the characters' identification with it and their commitment to it. Do you think Grossman's writing and the Chandler's translation captures the sentiment of Stalingrad's defenders and the people in the city at the time? Well, again, one cannot generalize, but it's... Yeah. Sure, uh, yes, sure. It's true. Uh, well, no, I'm sorry, one does almost need to um, include <laughs> that particular, <laughs> that, 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 that particular proviso um, e- each time, because, of course, there was a difference between those who were panicking and were desperate to get across the Volga. Mm. And for those who said there is no place across the river for us, they knew perfectly well that if they lost, if they lost the West Bank of the Volga, that would be the end of the battle and then basically the loss of Stalingrad itself. So every inch almost was vital. And this is why mm. uh, those battles, and especially of late September and the October battles, were so vital. One has to remember that General Trikov, the 62nd Army commander, was saying, time is blood, mm. or blood is time, i.e., he knew perfectly well that there were preparations for this tremendous counteroffensive going on, and that he was prepared to sacrifice as many lives as necessary to hold on uh, so that they could act, if you like, in a way, almost like the bait in a trap, to keep the Germans hammering away at Stalingrad while this vast counteroffensive of Operation Uranus was being prepared. Because mm. the Russian commanders at this particular stage, and this is where it's so important to understand why Stalin needed to trust both Zhukov and Vasilevsky, his main planners for Operation Uranus, was that the Germans despised the Red Army. They thought they were incapable of launching the sort of operation which they were preparing at that particular time. And that was a vital element in the surprise. So I think that the whole question of Trikov, the necessity for hanging on at that particular point, uh, was all part of the strategy which led to this massive encirclement of the Sixth Army, which was the largest formation in the whole of the German army. And this is why Stalingrad, the Battle of Stalingrad, was the psychological turning point of the whole war. Mm-hmm. The geopolitical turning point had already taken place, and that was the battle for Moscow and the entry of the Americans into the war in December 1941, the year before. But now the whole world knew. I mean, when I was researching Stalingrad and I came across, when he was there, and I came across this account 
of a Russian colonel who, as the German prisoners were marched out of Stalingrad, and this was, as I said, the beginning of February 1943, the few survivors who existed, only about 90,000 out of uh, a third of a million, he pointed at the ruins wow. all around and he said, this is how Berlin is going to look. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I mean, this, the, the knowledge spread across the world that actually the Germans now were going to be defeated. It wasn't going to be straight away. It was going to take time. I mean, r even in Chile, you know, Pablo Neruda was, was writing, was writing homenaje a Stalingrado, knowing that everything was going to change. For me, one of the great tragedies, of course, was that Stefan Zweig committed suicide with his wife just beforehand, not knowing yeah. that turning point was coming. Yeah, we talked about... Uh, we just covered Chess Story, and we which was one of his that. last writings before yes. that. Yeah. yeah. So when you were researching, did you go to Volgograd? Yeah, absolutely. How was it as a first-hand experience for you to be in that city, researching yeah. this really important moment in history? Well, I mean, it was fascinating. I mean, actually, the most moving times, I'm afraid, were tended to be in the, in the Moscow archives. Okay. When one started to find the detail. But there were those there who we talked, who'd been involved in the battle in those days. And, uh, for example, there was a, a professor at the university who'd um, lost both his legs. And he more or less acted as our guide wow. in a lot of places. And, I mean, he, he, was, he was the most magnificent man with his memories. But also, it was because he was intellectually honest. He wasn't trying to claim things that couldn't be true or anything like that. And we also interviewed some of the young, well, when I say young women, I mean, obviously they were old women by that particular stage, uh, who had either been the nurses. I mean, the staggering bravery of these girls who'd been having to drag the wounded down to the waterline, down to the edge of the Volga to evacuate these bodies across the uh, river mm -hmm. and then would go back for another one. And some of them had actually been the anti-aircraft gunners who had actually taken on the panzers right at that beginning on the 23rd of August. And it's, it was very interesting because Anne Applebaum was working on her book on the Gulag at the time. And we would meet up in Moscow at that and, and sort of exchange notes. Mm -hmm. And Anne said on one occasion, she said, tell me, does it happen to you? But I quite often get sort of blanked out by veterans of the Gulag saying, now, I'll tell you what happened. Don't interrupt. You know, you sit down. And she said, is it just because I'm a woman? I said, no, 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 we, we get the same thing um, from mm. the men, but Gosh. not from the women. And that was very, very interesting. Because what I, we, I suddenly realized, actually, on the metro, going back after our dinner, I suddenly realized, of course, that actually the women, they'd kept their eyes open and their mouths shut. Now, the men had been humiliated under the Stalinist system. You know, there they were, the head of the family or whatever. But they'd had no control over their own fates. And now suddenly here were these foreign historians coming to interview them about what happened in the Second World War. So there was a lot of stuff about, oh, well, I was here and I saw Marshal Zhukov. And of course, I told Marshal Zhukov this. I mean, a lot of it was just bluff and bullshit. Sure. But actually, there was also still a lot of truth. and It was still worth interviewing. But you could see the way that suddenly sort of, you know, the men suddenly felt at last that they were in control of history. The women, they weren't interested. They were only interested in the truth. And that's why we both realized that actually women were far more reliable witnesses uh, than men when it came to it. Incredible. And especially that was what, that was for me, the big lesson which we found when interviewing people down in, in Volgograd back in whatever that was, 1994, 1995, 94. Yeah. Wow. Is there anything else, just as we're wrapping up, that you wanted to say about either the book or Grossman or the battle? What we haven't actually really covered, which I think is a very important thing, is anti-Semitism. Yeah. Please, yeah. Yeah, we'd love to talk about this. 
because, I mean, I never forget being struck when one started to read how there in 1945, as soldiers returned, there were anti-Semitic pogroms in the Soviet Union. And you thought after, you know, all of uh, the horrors of, you know, Treblinka, of all of the other concentration camps, Auschwitz, which, of course, we didn't know about Auschwitz in the West because the um, Soviets kept quiet about it. Now, one of the reasons for this is, and we must remember, is that in uh, 1939, with the Soviet Nazi pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, one of the tacit agreements uh, was that the Soviet Union would not talk about anti-Semitism in Germany. And this is the reason why so many Jews, and particularly take Babi Yar, when they were ordered in Kiev to turn up, simply 30,000 Jews turned up, genuinely believing that they were going to be simply sent somewhere else, not realizing that actually this was a death center. Mm -hmm. And there was an extraordinary ignorance about anti-Semitism in Germany, which then actually affected the Soviet Union, because Stalin's feeling was that Jews should not be seen as a special category of suffering. And the slogan, the party slogan at the time was, do not divide the dead. So everybody who was described as having died in concentration camps, they all had to be Russian. In some cases, they did allow Poles to be uh, admitted. Mm. But basically, there was never a question of identifying them in any way as Jewish. Wow. And this is one of the reasons why Ilya Ehrenberg and Vasily Grossman were involved in the anti-fascist and the Jewish anti-fascist committee. But of course, this was very much against what Stalin wanted. And in fact, why Grossman himself was actually at risk of losing his life by the end. I mean, when you think that the chair of it, Tony Mikhail's, was killed by the KGB by being run down by a truck, it was deliberately done. And others were arrested and some of them killed by the NKVD. It gives you an idea of quite how dangerous it was at the end of Stalin's life at the time of writing of uh, uh, Grossman's novels, that he actually got through alive. I mean, it was it was really quite a, a dangerous time for him. But it, this is partly because one assumes that sort of, you know, the Soviet Union, the Red Army, the liberator of Europe and all the rest of it was well aware of it. And in fact, one of the reasons why I was in such um, trouble in, the, in, in Russia and still am in theory is that um, the material we found in the Russian archives was that actually Jewish women liberated from um, some of the camps were then being raped by the Red Army, who saw no difference between them and um, German women. So it's still a very, very sensitive subject yeah. in Russia. Uh, mm. And also another reason why I think that Grossman is seen, especially in this sort of revived nationalism that we're seeing under Putin, why we're seeing that... Uh, uh, Grossman is actually seen with a good deal of suspicion mm. in 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 Russia at the at the moment. Yeah, and to bring it back to the text, when we talk about sort of the anti-Semitism and the Jewish experience that Grossman had, there's a really poignant part where Strum has his mother lost behind the German lines in Ukraine, exactly the same way that Grossman did, and just would never know if his mom was alive or dead for a long time until he found out that she was killed in the camps. And there is a moment in the book where through like a game of telephone of this person delivering the letter to this person, delivering the letter to this person, Shroom finally gets this final letter from his mom. 
in the end, I believe from Novikov. And it is one of the most emotionally overwhelming moments of this book with Grossman as best as he can fictionalizing and narrativizing this story of the German Soviet that wasn't really told historically. Mm -hmm. Well, one has to remember, of course, that Grossman himself did feel deep guilt. And it was partly because his wife at the time said, well, we haven't got room for her in the flat in the apartment in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And so that's why Grossman felt so guilty that he hadn't made more of an effort to persuade her to come. And he knew about German anti-Semitism. But most people, most people in the Soviet Union didn't really know about it at all at that particular, at that particular stage. So, yes, he had strong reasons for, uh, feeling, for, for, for feeling the way that he did in, uh, mm-hmm. and, and his guilt. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. You were an incredible guest. We loved this discussion. Well, it's always, always a pleasure. That was a fascinating discussion. Agreed. It was wonderful to be able to talk to someone who had a different sense of knowledge, who gave us a wider perspective on the book than just the the literary aspect alone. Totally, especially for this book. Talking about the book, though, just one-on-one, was there any characters that stood out the most to you in this tapestry? Yeah, uh, Victor. Of course, Victor. The Vasily counterpart. I, I, I felt like he took, I mean, obviously, because it was his surrogate self. It was the most personal portrait of any of the characters in the book. And I didn't know that when I read it, Mm -hmm. but it just seemed to kind of come alive in a way that the others did. I didn't want to diss the other characters, but it had something special to it. We, uh, We never did a reading. Oh, yeah. Do you want to read it? I think I took a picture. Where's my phone? This is not really sweated over at all. It just happens to be one of the few passages I, I took a photo of. Okay. <laughs> Which says something. Yes. Uh, but there's a lot of, obviously, it's an almost thousand page book. You could single out. The whole thing. Virtually any page and find something worthwhile. But I felt like this did a good job of bringing together his different skill sets that kind of witness to history one and the literary one. Oh, great. The scale of the battle was felt by lathe operators, by troubleshooters at ammunition plants, by train dispatchers and railway station porters, by miners, steelworkers, and blast furnace operators. The scale of the battle was felt in printing presses, in radio and telegraph offices, in the editorial offices of the thousands of newspapers published in different parts of the country, in the depths of forests, and in remote polar stations. It was equally apparent to injured veterans, to old women working on collective farms, to children at village schools, and to famous Akam editions. The battle was an overwhelming reality, not only for people, but also for birds flying through the smoke-filled air and for the fish in the Volga. Huge catfish, ancient pike, and giant sturgeon all kept close to the riverbed, trying to escape the deafening bombs, shells, and torpedoes, and the violent eruptions of the water itself. Ants, beetles, wasps, grasshoppers, and spiders in the surrounding steppe were no less aware of the battle. Field mice, hares, and ground squirrels slowly became used to the smell of burning, to the sky's new color, to the earth's constant trembling. Even several meters below ground, lumps of clay kept falling from the walls and ceilings of their burrows. That was one of my favorite sections, too. I had that outline. Yeah, yeah. I loved that part. I mean, you just often don't stop to think about that, like... What do the birds do? 
when suddenly bombs start raining down and and all of those little ripples of impact that it has, not just on human lives, but like the environment in general. I think that that is so much the project of both Stalingrad and Life and Fate, though we haven't read Life and Fate yet. Yeah. Is to bring our attention to all of those other things that people overlook while still focusing on the the main battle too. Yeah. I think as Anthony mentioned very well in his interview about the idea of making sure to remember wartime history from the very human perspective instead of just the overhead perspective. Above and below. Yeah. yeah. You can almost go even further to just like the breaking of the earth mm-hmm. of nature being destroyed mm-hmm. and the, that effect as well beyond human. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to Unburied Books. Our next episode will in fact be an interview A conversation. A conversation with the Edwin Frank. Editorial director of NYRB Classics. So we thought that would be a nice capstone to this initial run of episodes that we've done. We're kind of thinking of it as a first season, although... It's our first six months. We're not taking a break or anything. Don't worry. From this point on, we hope to make some changes and develop the show in new ways. And I think we're excited for what the future holds. I definitely am. So so you get a break from reading. Yes, you do. You can <laughs> this will be a helpful catch up for those trying to read along. Which we respect and love every single one of you. Yes, thank you for doing that. Bye. See ya. Bye.